This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, better late than never, Vancouver proves the sale of wine in grocery stores. What took so long? Plus, how will BC police use short-term rental regulations? Victoria Mayor Marian Alto joins us, and as the Metro Vancouver Board pushes for more rapid bus lines, why is Richmond Council rejecting one of the proposed routes? Mayor Malcolm Brody drops by, and Keith Aldry joins us for the week that was in BC politics, and our Friday rap panel weighs in on the 100 best pop songs in history. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. It's Friday, after all, so no better time to think about and talk about wine. Now, at a public hearing yesterday, City Council approved um, bylaw amendments that would allow the sale of wine in stores larger than 10,000 square feet. Joining me now to discuss the issue is ABC Vancouver City Councilor Mike Klassen. Mike, thank you for your time today. Good afternoon, Jazz. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So the first question is, uh, you know, I see all these, uh, all this wine being sold in suburban grocery stores for uh, a very long time. First question to you is, what took so long here in Vancouver? Yeah, well, there are, in, in fact, 20 other municipalities across uh, BC that are already have wine on grocery store shelves. And so, so Vancouver is a bit late to the game. This did come to a previous council that at the time turned it down, um, but I, I brought the motion in the spring for us to revisit that decision, uh, and it came to public hearing yesterday, and, it, and we've changed the bylaws. So now we're going to be allowed to uh, sell uh, wine, to stock it, and sell it off of grocery store shelves in the city. And so there are a few next steps, but um, as you point out, uh, it'll have to be a store over 10,000 square feet, but... Uh, it's a, I think it's a, a great opportunity for the city. Now, right now, uh, are there any stores that sell um, wine beyond just the private sector wine shops that are already there in grocery stores right now in Vancouver? There is a ca- classification called store within a store, so it would have a separate till, a separate area. But because of the cost and the, the sort of the cost per square footage, um, there's only been one, um, I, I guess, one grocery store in all of the city that have taken that up. So that program, even though it's been around for a long time, just didn't sort of didn't land. So this is why this is going to have, I think, more success. Uh, and so any sense of how many, uh, how many stores or retail outlets may uh, take you up on this offer? I mean, have you, do you have a sense of it? Is it going to be 10 stores, 20 stores, 30 stores? I think the number is going to be much smaller to begin with, and that's because of the nature of the licensing right now. Uh, liquor policy, as you know, in this province is uh, is a complicated affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, initially when um, uh, some recommendations came down, probably you know, about t- uh, just under 10 years ago, uh, to revisit our liquor laws. Um, allowing wine and grocery store shelves was one of them. So eventually it came through. The, the province uh, approved the legislation. Um, but it did trigger some alarm from other jurisdictions like Australia and California that produce a lot of wine, of course. And so we started getting trade challenges. And um, and then some of the private uh, liquor store operators felt that they didn't want the competition. So just uh, just to fast forward to today, a lot of that um, temperature around those issues has been settled. Um, the, the stakeholders themselves are are not um, uh, worried about this kind of competition. So 
so now we have uh, still a moratorium from the province in the creation of new licenses. So mm-hmm. for us to be able to to bring those licenses into um, uh, you know stores in in Vancouver, they're literally going to have to be taken from somewhere else in the province. And you know what we've heard from other uh, municipalities is this is a program that they really like and it's been successful. So. I guess uh, it, it, it sort of forces the question of whether we should end the moratorium or at least uh, open up a few more of those licenses. Well, it would make sense that the largest uh, municipality in the province, that you it does get, provide some um, leverage to say, you know what, we can use a few more licenses in our province. I, I mean, you shouldn't be taking away from other any other community if this program is successful, uh, but it just tells you there's not enough licenses, particularly if a community of, uh, well, 650,000 plus wants to have them. Have you had any conversation yet with uh, the provincial government just on a, just a sort of a off the record or just any conversation just to say, look, this is where we're headed and, and this is what you need to be doing. I, well, f- first of all, they obviously pay very close attention to what happens at the city of Vancouver. Those, those kind of talks are, haven't really happened. We had to kind of I think we had to get to through the public hearing process and, and not assume anything uh, before that concluded. Uh, I know that the the industry itself, so the grocers, uh, the grocery companies, the, the Save on Foods, and the the Loblaws stores uh, that are here are all looking very closely at this one and seeing it as a as an opportunity to bring that convenience and and choice. Um, and and you, as you point out, Vancouver is the largest city in Western Canada. It's it's the the largest. Uh, you know, city in British Columbia, and it really should be a place where we can showcase this. You know, we attract the perhaps the most tourists um, from abroad to come to our city, and when they want to be able to, um, you know, be able to pick up a, a bottle of wine, I would say prefer like a very nice bottle of BC wine, um, you know, they're probably going to ask themselves, where do I get it? Normally, I can just go to a corner grocery store or grocery store uh, back home, and, and but here you don't have it. So now, uh, hopefully, this will... Uh, this new change of policy and the change of the bylaws will mm. will permit more of this to happen. It is amazing, though, that you and I are having this conversation in 2023 for the city of Vancouver to actually get around to do this, which is the good, uh, the right thing. And just hopefully now there will be more licenses available for the for the city because I just cannot believe in a, in a city the size of Vancouver in a developed nation that we're still having this conversation. It it really is a bit mind boggling, isn't it? Well, I, I think about how we market ourselves as a province, as, as tourist attractions. I mean, there isn't every one of those vid- videos and, and lovely films that they show uh, advertising BC Supernatural and Destination British Columbia um, now feature sweeping, you know, uh, shots of vineyards in the Okanagan, and, and, and rightly so. They're wonderful attractions, but a lot of that industry has taken a real hit in the last couple of years with a big freeze that. Um, killed a lot of the grapevines, about half the grapevines in some parts of the region, and and then all the wildfire smoke that kept the tourists away. So it's a it's a it's an indigenous industry that we're extremely proud of, and we should be supporting them. And and that's the message we heard from the industry representatives that spoke to public hearing yesterday. Mike, thanks for your time today. Excellent, thanks, Jazz. Have a great weekend. joined now by Jerry Mayor Judson. I was just thinking about uh, Mike Klassen's uh, conversation, which we just had right before the uh, the commercial break there. And uh, I was curious, uh, in Calgary, mm-hmm. you have yeah. 
retail outlets sell beer yes. and wine, all yeah. of that, right? Yeah, That's yeah, what yeah. You do. do grocery stores sell alcohol? No, grocery stores do not sell alcohol. You can't find beer or wine in the grocery store. But what grocery stores a lot of the time do have is in the parking lot, there will be a branded liquor store. So Safeway has a Safeway liquor store two meters in the parking lot away from the Safeway or Costco. Of course, you know, the Costco liquor store. That's their superstore has a liquor store out there. So yeah. every store, it's in co-op. Co-op has a liquor store always in the same so complex. It's right next to the <laughs> seasonal stuff. Like, yeah, like, so like we need your gardening or, like or pretty much is where it would be. <laughs> so if you needed salt for your drive in the middle of winter, yes, you could pick up some vodka. Yeah. You right get a box of wine and a bag of salt. It would be great. <laughs> really? But truly. Yeah. So I remember <laughs> the first time I ever went to Toronto, I went into a Loblaws and I saw that there was beer and wine in the store and in, in the Loblaws store. I was like, oh my goodness, this yeah. is amazing. It's a one-stop shop. I can get everything I need. Well, it's, uh, we're, we're better than where we were 10, 15 years ago, but it's amazing that the city, of, we're celebrating the city of Vancouver finally saying yes. Yeah. The sub, we suburb folks, we've been doing okay for a while, but these <laughs> folks are in Vancouver proper have gotten around it. But let's, uh, let's talk about another issue, a very serious issue yes. in regards to uh, medical assistance and dying. There's a lot mm-hmm. of talk around um, uh, those folks that um, have substance abuse, a mental illness, and now yeah. the conversation of MAID or medical assistance dying. That conversation is now including those folks as well? Yes. So there was a two-year, I believe, extension on saying whether or not people who suffer from mental illness would qualify for medical assistance in dying or be allowed to meet some eligibility criteria. And that two-year extension is officially coming to an end as of March 2024. Mm -hmm. So it's coming up. It's in the news now because we are reviewing it. We're talking about it. Um, They're retooling it and seeing what, what needs to actually happen to these eligibility criteria. But the problem that some people have been saying is, well, mental illness covers substance use disorder. And, and, you know, what, why are we saying that? Like Bart is, is, is it, you know, are we officially giving up on people with substance use disorder? Cause that's sort of the message that the federal government is sending, whether they might mean to or not. Um, so I talked to Guy Felicella, of course, he is a harm reduction and recovery advocate. And I asked him what his kind of first impressions of this news were. I think it's just absolutely brutal if you think about you know where we are with you know people who are struggling with substances and basically seems like we're trying to give up by saying like hey we'll give you this alternative which to me is that i've never met anybody um in addiction who want to end their life they don't want to live the way they're living but never had somebody say like i just want to you know, in my life. And often it's, you know, I want to change, but I just don't know how. So the assisted dying thing is, I mean, it's just, it was just, uh, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, if it passes would be, you know, pretty much unforgivable. What you're saying completely makes sense. That's what I thought of too. My my thing too is the the current criteria for it. It lists grievous and irreversible conditions, and you have to wonder why that's being expanded to conditions like, say, substance use disorder, which like can wildly fluctuate, kind of depending on what's going on in your life and the amount of resources you have access to, right? Yeah, I mean, here we are in a you know crisis that takes what 22 Canadians every day across mm-hmm. the country. You know, six here in British Columbia. Obviously, you know, we have this Band-Aid approach with our harm reduction services that don't get to the root issues that people are struggling with. Obviously, you can look at the toxic drug supply that kills people. And then also with that, because of the drug supply being so toxic, it is creating more addiction, therefore making um, it more challenging to have access to treatment and recovery services. And so for me, it's just, you know, why wouldn't you first 
try absolutely implementing more harm reduction strategies, more access to recovery and treatment, more housing, and, and do all these uh, things that have been neglected for so long instead of just, you know, throwing out that, hey, uh, this might be an option for people to, you know, uh, access and aid. Yeah, like you said, I think that we could just spend more energy and more effort in saying that we did everything we could with regard to harm reduction and, and, and treatment implementation, but it really does seem like we just kind of threw in the towel. See, I don't give up on people. One thing I know about, you know, uh, eating addiction treatment is that it's, you know, it's a chronic relapsing condition with many roads and roller coaster rides, but, you know, people do get there. Sometimes it, it takes time. And, you know, what we're saying is that, hey, you know, if it gets really bad and your life sucks, like here, you can just end it. Um, and to me, I just, I just can't, I just can't support anything like that. I just find it. Listen, I, I'll support stuff for people with, with heavy chronic pain conditions that just can't function at all in our society. I think there's a place for that, but for something like this, it's just absolutely unacceptable. And it shouldn't even be a topic of conversation. How about just let's fund billions of dollars into recovery and treatment and, and harm reduction instead of allowing people, if they want to make the choice, to die. Uh, just listen to Guy there. Uh, I would totally agree with him. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I was on the Fraser Health Authority board, and you know, talking about this um, off air before. And when MAID was introduced okay. uh, as being on the board, it was a tough decision. And and there's tremendous amount of opinions on both sides of this yeah, issue. Yes, certainly. And even within a medical community, right? And that was a tough a, a tough call. But but I think we made the right call, and mm-hmm. people may disagree with that. But when you start talking about medical assistance dying with people with mental illnesses, including substance. Uh, abuse disorder, uh, I think that's a tremendous, tremendous slippery slope. And I don't think yeah. we want to go there as a society. Not no, a certainly not. It's like, the, it's like the grievous and irreversible conditions clause that's in it. And a mental illness is not that. Substance yeah. use disorder is not that. They fluctuate too much. Like, I don't know. It's, I'm not a doctor. But I'm open. I'm, I have an open mind. I love to listen to folks who are advocating for this just to get their opinion yeah. on this. But it's certainly my initial response would be, well, I don't, that, that is just going way too far for society, in my opinion, mm-hmm. at this point. But I'm open to listen to those who advocate for it. I'm not sure how many there are, but if they are willing to listen. Oh, totally. But I think uh, the vast majority of Canadian society, when they hear that, uh, certainly... um, Doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound good. Today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said India's decision to revoke diplomatic immunity for dozens of Canadian diplomats is making life unbelievably difficult for millions of people uh, with ties to uh, to India. Uh, Trudeau made the remarks in Brampton, Ontario, a day after his government confirmed that 41 Canadian diplomats had left India after New Delhi threatened to revoke their diplomatic immunity. Here is Prime Minister Trudeau. The Indian government is making it unbelievably difficult for life as usual to continue for millions of people in India and in Canada. And they're doing it by contravening a very basic principle of diplomacy. Now, Mr. Trudeau, of course, uh, is talking about the fact that many Canadians of Indian heritage uh, travel back to the country, particularly uh, in the winter months. And according to uh, data from the Punjab government, about uh, 25% of that travel over the course of a year happens during uh, the month of December. So it is certainly impacting many uh, Vancouverites, many British Columbians uh, who wish to travel back to the old country. Uh, And this is the time they do so. And this is the time they apply for visas and, of course, uh, are unable to 
uh, do so at this particular point. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this uh, broader uh, concern in our relationship with India is Ujjal Dasanj, the former Premier of British Columbia. Ujjal, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, so first and foremost, your thoughts uh, in regards to the 41 Canadian diplomats uh, heading uh, home uh, from uh, New Delhi back to Canada. Uh, how much of an impact does this have in the broader uh, issue and our ability to hopefully one day come to some sort of conclusion where we can actually deal with this issue? Well, I think it's, um, it's, it's an escalation of, of the situation, um, but this was... Um, Asked for, I think, several weeks ago. Uh, it happened uh, yesterday, and it will impact, uh, as you say, um, thousands of people who come to India um, or go to India for holidays or to do other things in life and meet their relatives and friends. And and it will also impact people who want to come to Canada. And uh, if you take away 41 people who are processing visas and doing other things, and there's going to be a slowdown. So uh, the traffic both ways is going to suffer. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get into the merits of um, whether it should have been done or not. I think it, it sh- perhaps it shouldn't have been done because we need to de-escalate. Uh, but the Indians say that um, that it's about parity. Um, if you have... If India has a certain number of diplomats in uh, in Canada... Based on that, there should be only certain number of diplomats in India. Mm-hmm. I don't know the international rules regarding that, so I can't really comment on that. Now, Mr. Trudeau um, brought up the allegations last month that the Indian agents were involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijar, uh, in Surrey on June 18th. Do you think Mr. Trudeau should have dealt with this issue privately with the Indian government than rather than making it public? Oh, I, I think that I think he should have been dealt with it, uh, perhaps in a uh, in, in a lower profile fashion. Uh, I I think he did make efforts privately to speak to the prime minister and our national security advisor. I understand spoke to the national security advisor of India a couple of times. That's on record. So um, you know, obviously they did make that effort. Uh, but in terms of the somber statement that he made in the House of Commons. Uh, perhaps it could have been dealt with a different way. Um, and um, what you did was, what um, you know, Canada did was um, make an allegation directly at India. Um, and even now, I see it in the tone of uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, there was uh, you know, obviously uh, some perhaps toughness in the way he made the statement that you just um, uh, played. On the radio, um, I I think that you know on both sides there has been unnecessary escalation. Uh, if India did what it is alleged to have done, obviously that is very serious. And um, but you know if you begin to lecture other countries, um, I mean nobody likes that. Uh, you know this is not the 40s or 50s. And I've been speaking to Indians, and uh, they are equally angry. And I, uh, you know, I'm speaking to Canadians, and they're angry too. Nobody's happy in this. Yeah. Um, look, at, the, at its core, uh, India has always said uh, that really for the last four decades, 
uh, this country, perhaps even five decades, has not have not clamped down on a small minority of uh, Sikhs who are seeking an independent homeland, causing trouble in India. Uh, they've talked about uh, their involvement in the bombing, the Air India, Air India bombing, which of course uh, the flight took off from here in in Vancouver. But they've also felt, and certainly reading the Indian media, uh, that Mr. Trudeau has cultivated the vote of those who are seeking an independent Sikh state, uh, and that is at its core the challenge that Mr. Trudeau is up against, that he has courted that vote with that within that community or that subsection of that community, and this is what is also escalated at least a diplomatic uh, pushback from India. Oh, absolutely. And and the evidence for Mr. Trudeau having quoted that vote is abundant. Uh, his own staff, Omar Aziz, who no longer works in the Prime Minister's office, has written about how every time the issue of India or policy vis-a-vis India came up uh, in the administration, um, it, the issue of Khalistan and his supporters always stood in the way of uh, formulating the correct policy. His own staff has said that. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and you have Mr. Chidmeet Singh, who is now supporting this government, and he is a known Khalistani sympathizer. He had the hardest time denouncing, when he became the leader, he had the most difficult time denouncing the Linder Brahmar, the Air India terrorist. What, uh, what makes it worse? is that Indians remember uh, that they have actually asked for the extradition of Talwinder Pramar for having murdered policemen in India long before the Air India tragedy. And the senior Trudeau was the prime minister at that moment, and he refused to um, extradite Mr. Pramar. And then Mr. Pramar and his uh, colleagues went on to bomb Air India uh, in, in 1985, and Indians remember that. You see, those are those are wounds that India has, and uh, and uh, people remember those things. If you read the Indian press, it's full of those stories and that connection with his own father. And uh, and you know, I I have seen on Twitter and on other places um, that you know, Mr. Trudeau has had uh, members. Uh, uh, of uh, Parliament uh, in his caucus, who have been rabid Khalistanis, and uh, and it's well known within the community. Um, and you know, from my perspective, um, one doesn't have to condemn individuals. But what one could have said that you know, India is a democracy, perhaps a faultier democracy than ours in Canada, but it's a friendly country. That they always take refuge under this freedom of expression uh, situation. They could have said all this while politicians in Canada could have said, look, India is a friendly country. You have the right to ask for Khalistan and we don't stop you. But we disagree with you because we don't support the dismemberment of a friendly democracy. Uh, nobody's ever said that. Nobody in Canada, no politician of any stature has ever said that. The reason is you know, if, if you lose uh, a thousand votes in a riding, uh, in in uh, close um, in close uh, one ridings or lost ridings, uh, five hundred votes matter, two hundred votes matter, mm-hmm. and uh, and this has been sheer craft politics for Canadian politicians. It, I think it's come home to roost for for this country. I mean, you could maybe get away with it in the '90s in the sense that. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't as much of a threat, but it has been growing and growing, and it's playing a bigger and bigger and bigger role. 
uh, in this country and impacting its foreign policy. And I think it's it's sort of come home to roost now uh, for Mr. Uh, for Mr. Trudeau. And and I'm not sure how we walk away from this. It's not a nation. India is not a nation well, you, that's going anywhere. Well, number one, and it's growing. And its economy is going to hit five trillion dollars. Be the third largest economy in the world. You know, it's an emerging superpower, and we are in trouble with it and with China. Yeah, and, and there, there was no need to be in trouble with India. I mean, I, if India has done something wrong, India should uh, be uh, told it's done something wrong. But there are ways of dealing with it. But Mr. Trudeau, uh, you know, maybe he tried to get ahead of the story because Globe was going to print a story. But he could have had his foreign affairs minister speak to the Globe and be quoted in it that we're looking after it, we're dealing with it, we're speaking to India, we've sent our national security advisor. Um, he could have done that. And um, he didn't do that. And, you know, for the longest time in Canada, and I have weathered this storm on my own body and soul for the last many years, you have people with the images of AK-47s in the temples, outside the temples, the terrorists are being glorified. Um, and and you have, uh, you know, the images outside the Surrey Temple with AK-47s and with, with the uh, urging, with the board's urging, urging assassination of, uh, of Indian consular officials. Um, and yet, the government of Canada has done nothing. And you've had uh, floats uh, glorifying the assassination of Indian Prime Minister in places like Brampton. And uh, there have been now mealy-mouthed condemnations of that. But there has never been any uh, action or cases brought against people who have glorified violence inside the temples, the kind of poison that, that they've been spewing inside the temples and outside the temples. And, uh, you know, there, is, uh, there are provisions in the criminal code um, that are aimed at preventing glorification of violence. Uh, why have they not been used? Why have the police not been visiting these individuals who spew poison inside the temples and who uh, put posters outside the temples with AK-47s and seeking assassination of Indian consular officials? Um, and that, in fact, for me, Canada itself is uh, bringing no glory to its own system of government and to its own values by ignoring what has been gone on under its very nose and quite publicly. Yeah. Ujo, we've run out of time. Uh, look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much for your comments today. I fundamentally agree with you here that uh, all our problems have come home to roost now. It's been a few decades, but uh, you, we didn't get here slowly, that's for sure. Ujo, thank you for your time. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
earlier this week, uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan was on this program, in fact, on Monday, uh, when he uh, introduced the Short-Term Rental Accommodation Act, which is uh, expected to come into force by the end of the fall legislative session, so by the end of November, which essentially bans most short-term rentals that aren't in an operator's principal residence. And, of course, that means uh, uh, stricter fines as well, $3,000 per infraction Per day, there's no doubt uh, many communities uh, and elected officials in those communities uh, have been inundated uh, with complaints about Airbnbs operating uh, in their community. Uh, Vancouver is one, Victoria is another. Joining me now to talk a little bit about um, what this legislation will mean for their communities is Marianne Alto, who's the mayor of Victoria. Ms. Alto, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Lovely to speak with you. So when you heard the legislation announced, uh, uh, your thoughts first and foremost, do you think it'll have the teeth that will require you and help your uh, fellow councillors deal with the challenges of Airbnb and short-term rentals in your community? Well, we certainly hope so. And I think that you've actually really focused on the most important piece of it, and that's the enforcement piece. I mean, we were pleased to see the, the province step in and begin to look at regulating short-term rentals across the province because obviously, you know, doing it municipality by municipality isn't the most efficient way or the most fair and consistent way. And so we're hoping that what these policies will do, because it does provide some oversight, is really ease the municipal burden. The two pieces of that that uh, I think that I'm hoping most for are uh, the pieces around data sharing because, you know, it's so important for us to be able to learn where these rentals are. You know, we can't really regulate anything that we can't find. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, and as you say, it's enforcement and compliance because we spend an enormous amount of time municipally you know, sending our bylaw folks out in response to complaints. And you're right, there are many, many, many complaints that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uses up time for you know, other work that bylaw officers can do, which is you know, arguably as or more important. So, and this is all about, for us, uh, you know, welcoming this type of collaboration. And, and we are looking forward to seeing just what those teeth really are. Mm-hmm. So now this is hopefully going to re- receive royal assent by the end of the fall legislative session. So in your mind, how would this work? You get a complaint about an illegal short-term rental. Your office would then uh, call up this uh, enforcement team, the provincial enforcement team, and they could correlate that with data. And then they would report back to you. And then the bylaw officers would then go out or the city would then deal with the issue? So that's partially true. And, and of course, all of this is speculation in our yeah. part because we haven't seen the actual detail. But what I understand is that there'd be a little bit more involvement with the municipality at the front end because once the data sharing requirements are set up into an accessible database, uh, it's my understanding that our folks will have access to that. Don't quote me on that because mm-hmm. we haven't had that clarified. But that would make it easy in the sense that obviously you know, there are ways to license properly uh, a short-term re- rental. And so we have those records, obviously, on a local basis. And so the first easy step I would venture to say would be for us to be able to compare our data on appropriately uh, licensed rentals against the data that is collected by the province. That would allow us to immediately identify uh, whether or not there's information on the provincial database that we don't have, which would then suggest that those folks are operating without a local license. That information would then be able to be turned to the province to be able to say, hey, look, here's a whole bunch of things that we don't have on our, on our system. So over to you guys to you know, try and do some investigation on that. And so how much of that investigation will be with the new provincial enforcement team and how much will be left to the local municipalities isn't yet quite clear. Uh, but we're hoping, obviously, that it falls more heavily on the provincial team because they have more resources than we do. Uh, what is it like presently uh, for you uh, and your community in regards to the size and scope of the challenge of short-term rentals? 
It's, it's pretty significant. I mean, we are always trying to find that interesting balance because we're a very tourist-heavy city, obviously, mm-hmm. and we want to be able to make sure that we do have different differential options for accommodation for folks who are visiting. And sometimes that experiential thing is about an STR, and so that's why we have the ability to license it properly. But, but just to give you some perspective, uh, so far, since we've had our own bylaws, which came into effect in 2018, we've issued 346 fines, uh, for um, short-term rentals that did not um, abide by our regulations. And that's been worth $91,000. And within that, uh, that obviously needs an enormous amount of detective work you know, around trying to uh, investigate whether or not these applications or rather these the complaints are valid, what, what the circumstances are. Uh, some of those actually lead to appeals of decisions, and then that essentially takes some months of time that it has to actually go through city council. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, you know, uh, during the, uh, the time, those few years that I've described, uh, in four of those cases, uh, we actually had to go to court uh, and fought the short-term rental owners in court, uh, including one person who actually had been operating an Airbnb despite being denied a license over a fairly long period of time. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the city won all four of those cases. And that ended up uh, uh, turning out $20,000 in fine and court orders prohibiting five people who were operating those from ever operating short-term rentals again. Hmm. So, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly intensive requirement for a local municipality, particularly a municipality that has a, an enormous reliance uh, on resort visitors. Yeah. Uh, do you think, with the legislation itself, we, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day in your community uh, that that is a renter, I think in her uh, mid sixties, just retired, and so the, she used her some of her life savings, a lot of her life savings, to buy this short term rental in a building that does allow short term rentals, um, and as part of sort of her retirement plan. Uh, and now, of course, she'll have to rent it out on a monthly basis. It's a, I think it's about a three hundred square foot apartment, something in and around there. Nothing too big. Um, do you think there still should be room for mom and pop short term rental operators who? Uh, do want to make a little bit of money on the side. They're not, you know, renting out five apartments and then mm-hmm. then renting them out to Airbnb themselves. But those small town, small small time mom and pop operators. Do you think we may be a bit too strict in the legislation? I actually think that we do need to have room to have that conversation. But I also understand completely that you know that often the best way to start with something is something that's pretty clean and easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think what I'm hoping for is that as this unfolds, and as you say, hopefully it gets uh, its last readings this fall and comes into place next year, next spring, uh, during the time between now and then, we have time to look at how this works. But perhaps more importantly, once it comes into effect, we'll be able to see how effective it is how easy it is to operate, what impact it has. And I, I personally do think that there should be room for exceptions, that there are uh, lots of different circumstances which don't fit the cookie-cutter approach, of course, through most, with most things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that conversation, at least in my view, is not off the table. But having said that, I do want to emphasize the fact that we wouldn't be in this position if we weren't dealing with the most dramatic housing crisis we've ever had. Yeah. And so it is, it is true that you know a 300 or 300 square foot, 350 square foot unit may not be to some folks uh, liking, but I'll tell you that uh, my young adult kids would jump at the chance at being able to read that. 
uh, and would find it perfectly acceptable. And I think there's an awful lot of people who would be able to adapt quite quickly and with some delight in being able to have that chance. Uh, out of curiosity, I know Vancouver is about 1,500 hotel spaces short for our, for the Metro Vancouver region. Does your community have the same challenges as well? I, I know you have lots in and around the legislature, uh, yeah. lots of great places to stay in Victoria, but are you lacking hotel spaces? Yeah, we're definitely behind in that, and that's certainly something that we're trying to work very closely with uh, Destination Greater Victoria and a number of developers. We do have some hotels that are in the pipe as far as applications and development, and we're very encouraged by that. Uh, Obviously, that's part of this big conversation about the different experiences that are offered for visitors, and we will be addressing the shortfalls in hotel spaces in the next couple of years, along with different projects like this. I think the key message here, I think for me, with the STR legislation is that No one of these policies, and the city of Victoria has more than a dozen housing-related policies aimed at accelerating diversity of housing, no one of them is going to end up solving this crisis. All of them together uh, may have a significant impact, and it's, it's really looking at pushing every conceivable lever to try and resolve this as fast as we can, as much as we can. And this is just one of those pieces. Uh, Marianne Alto, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You too. There's no doubt. I think we all agree that we need to be continue to spending money on uh, transit. TransLink, in fact, uh, has a 10-year investment plan uh, with a project expected to cost about $20 billion. Now, a lot of that is aspirational and require money not only locally but from the provincial government and the federal government as well. Now, that plan we, will include some SkyTrain, of course, but there's a huge focus on doubling bus service by 2035. That means 11 rapid bus lines as well, from including new routes from Marine Drive to 22nd Street Station, Lynn Valley to downtown Vancouver. And it was at one point Richmond Centre to Metro Town. Well, this week, Richmond rejected that proposal for the rapid bus line from Metro Town to Richmond Centre. Uh, the councillors there, uh, you know, were concerned by a few things, but particularly with rapid bus lines, it means you actually take out uh, uh, roadways. Uh, and that, of course, can impact those of us who are in vehicles. And they said it wasn't worth it to take away uh, roadways in some particularly busy arter- arterial areas. Uh, and so they rejected it at this point. That's Richmond Council. Now, that was a surprise to many who, of course, said, look, we got 11 rapid bus lines coming. We want to focus on that because that's really about, uh, really about moving people, number one. And secondly, it's way cheaper than actually paying for SkyTrain. Well, Mike Curley is the mayor of Burnaby and he's vice chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. He spoke to our Jill Bennett earlier today about Richmond saying no to rapid bus. Take a listen. No, I don't think I was uh, surprised at all. I I heard a pretty consistent message uh, from Mayor Brody and, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't really surprise me at all. They didn't feel that the road network that was being proposed, uh, would have been very efficient to have that type of, uh, of a bus running on there. And, uh, you know, we have to respect their decision. They know their community better than, certainly than I do. That was Mike Hurley, Mayor of Burnaby, of course, the TransLink Mayor's, uh, on, uh, and also a member of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Now joining me now is the Mayor of Richmond, Malcolm Brody. Malcolm, thank you for speaking, for us, speaking to us today. Oh, thank you, Jazz. It's always a pleasure. Lots to talk about. Uh, and there's a big, uh, of course, um, transit wish list, almost uh, 
uh, $20 billion when it comes to transit investment over the next decade or so. Um, now, but one of the things that's being focused upon is, of course, rapid buses throughout uh, the region. They, of course, are cheaper than SkyTrain, building SkyTrains. Now, one of, the, one of the routes being discussed was, of course, Metrotown uh, to Richmond, uh, and your council uh, wasn't supportive of that. Walk me through why, why the, the concerns the council had. Okay. Uh, as a region, uh, the major transportation lines, uh, we've traditionally looked to rail transportation, the SkyTrain line, the Canada line, uh, etc. And now uh, TransLink is going away from just focusing on fixed rail to what they call bus rapid transit. Bus rapid transit uh, will entail buses, running in dedicated lanes, no other traffic in those lanes. Uh, Technology will be superior uh, for intersection priority, for turning priority and the like. And there are also some stations uh, that will be full of the highest technology as well. So the, the route that was proposed by TransLink was called the Metrotown to Richmond City Center, which entailed buses in dedicated lanes traveling uh, on 49th in Vancouver and Burnaby, then uh, going north-south on Knight Street, including over the bridge, and then there would be a new exit from the Knight Street corridor onto Canby Road. And so of the four lanes, of Canby Road, two would be dedicated to the bus rapid transit, which uh, features buses coming along about once every 10 minutes. Our staff at the city didn't feel that to take away half the travel uh, surface for these dedicated buses every 10 minutes would be feasible on Canby. So what they proposed is that we go to what's called rapid bus, which is a, it would be a bus uh, which would be in an HOV lane, uh, but also specifying that we want the priorities, the technology, the stations, and one thing and another. Richmond City Council as a whole did not agree with that concept. Uh, there were three of us who supported it, me, uh, Councillor Alexa Liu, Councillor Michael Wolf, uh, the others voted against it, and so now we know what council doesn't want. Uh, the challenge then is to find out what council does want, and so there's going to be more activity and more interest shown in that in the uh, upcoming weeks. Hmm. Uh, and and is it just because they're taking that much that that many lanes out? It just isn't worth it in regards to the impact it'll have on motorists. And that's the biggest challenge at this particular point, or the biggest concern. Well, we've we've seen when we have temporary roadworks on these uh, uh, busy arterial streets where you have two lanes going each way, and for some reason, because of roadworks, you have to take away one of the lanes. The existing, the other lane becomes very congested very quickly, and certainly at peak times it's almost impossible. So uh, that's what would be entailed for Canby. We would be permanently losing one lane in each direction, 
uh, and the benefit we would get would be a bus every 10 minutes running in a dedicated lane. Um, that just seems to be uh, not a very good trade-off mm-hmm. for many reasons. Do you think we're going to see more issues like that in other, part of the, other parts of Metro Vancouver as more of these plans are rolled out and councils will have to look at them? I, think, I, I don't think anybody's against bus rapid transit. It's very successful in, in many dense areas, but as you say, as you move into some of these arterial roads and some of the suburbs, uh, it may not be the best use of the space. Do you think we'll see more of this opposition in, in, from suburban communities? I think that that's going to be how it will wind out. Uh, in due course. Uh, even some of the areas where they've said it's a good idea, once they get to uh, the reality of the situation, it may prove much more difficult than they think. But I do emphasize that from a transportation planning point of view, what we've got to be encouraging is the best transportation options, not just where the routing might be the easiest. So we, you know, for instance, um, the route to the North Shore is very problematic. Uh, Very dense areas uh, going over the Iron Works Bridge. Um, that's, That's a difficult route, but that should not deter us from doing the right thing from a transportation point of view. We just simply have to face the difficulties and the challenges and meet them. Uh, this uh, uh, rather aspirational price tag of $20 billion over those 10 years, um, is there also um, an assumption and presumption like we are going to build, still build rapid transit with SkyTrain, but those are really expensive projects and that really finding other ways to get moving people, moving them quickly is also part of the conversation. That's rapid transit about. But ultimately, the SkyTrain, you can't just rely on SkyTrain alone because the price tag is so significant. Well, yes. Uh, it's The price tag is so significant, as you say, but it's also fixed infrastructure. Now, once you have a bus rapid transit line on the regular road, it may not be very easy to change it, but it's going to be a lot easier to change your route as the needs would arise than it would be with the SkyTrain, which is on the fixed rail. So I think that that has to be borne in mind. And and as I say, region-wide, the, the focus is really turning to the bus rapid transit. And uh, I know that TransLink, Mayor's Council, the board, they're wrestling with the priorities for for the routes and where the top priorities should lie. Mm-hmm. Um, how com- uh, confident are you, you, you'll, you as collectively as a board, uh, working collectively, uh, can extract some of these dollars from the senior levels of government, provincially and especially federally? I know uh, federally governments like big infrastructure projects where they can come in and drop off a check and cut a ribbon, um, but they also are hesitant in, in spending dollars sometimes that are needed over the long term rather than just for one big flashy project. How comfortable are you the feds, especially the feds, are willing to um, you know loosen their wallet a little bit and help in regards to the expansion of transit in the lower mainland? I'm pretty confident because uh, we're not just talking about the, the, the transportation plans being the way to get from you know, from here to downtown Vancouver or something like that. What you're doing by encouraging people to get out of their cars and get into public transportation 
you're you're assisting in so many areas that senior levels of government are interested in. They're interested in preserving the environment. So you get people out of their cars, which cause emissions, and you get them into public transportation, which at the very least, the amount of emissions is far lower. So you're, you're helping the environment. Um, you're helping with housing because you can then provide uh, good on, on the arterials. You can provide good transportation. You can, again, have people. Uh, you can densify along the arterials, get people close to the public transportation. They aren't going to have so many cars, and they're going to be relying on the public form of transportation. So it, it checks a lot of the boxes that senior levels of government uh, have as priorities as well. And that's why I think uh, that it looks very good in terms of senior governments uh, helping to support TransLink as long as uh, they feel that the plans are feasible, uh, reliable, and provide good service to the people of the region. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting back to the, 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 the rapid bus line from uh, Metrotown to Richmond. Uh, with this vote, obviously, it's been turned down. Do you see the council uh, revisiting this? Do you think there is an opportunity to, to get to a place where there may be some solution to this issue? Well, I think that the the mood of council was definite uh, the other night in terms of uh, bus rapid transit, but I uh, I plan to uh, work with staff and bring back some possible options in terms of the rapid bus, which is uh, still it's a lot reliable form of transportation. It just isn't quite so um, exclusive, shall we say, as the bus rapid transit. So I think that our council needs to take a look at some of the options, and if they if council doesn't like the HOV lanes, which is what they said, uh, they they may well uh, like the rapid bus in the same corridor, getting a far higher level of service to serve the people of Richmond, Vancouver, and Burnaby. And the ridership numbers are are surprisingly uh, good; uh, they're surprisingly high. Uh, in terms of the numbers of people that are potentially served by that line. So I feel very uh, good about the possibilities that we'll, we'll get our council here in Richmond to a better place than uh, we are now, where they simply said, we don't want uh, bus rapid transit, uh, whether or not it's in a dedicated or an HOV lane. Malcolm, thanks for your time today. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Jazz. You too. Goodbye now is over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's All right, this week we look at what makes a song worthy of Billboard's top 500 songs of all time, and why do celebrities need to involve themselves in geopolitical events? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halibs, a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in Salisbury. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Ladies, welcome. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Happy Friday. Well, Billboard has released its list of top 500 pop songs of all time. Now, the list uh, is in celebration of the 60th anniversary of Billboard's Hot 100. And, and you know, and picking uh, uh, songs uh, on any list is tough, and especially with uh, pop music. It has to be catchy. It's got to be tight. It's rousing. It's emotional. Uh, how it's crafted. It's all, all those little things. And it is subjective. Uh, but... Uh, 
the top, of the top 500, the number one song chosen by uh, Billboard was Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, no. no <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh, my. The oh, critics, ow. shots fired right away. There you go. Uh, number two was ABBA's Dancing Queen. Um, the Temptations, My Girl, was number three. And I, I'm, I'm surprised they placed this high, and maybe because, well, I'm old. Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way, was four. Kelly Clarkson, Since You've Been Gone, was five. And both of those were ahead of Madonna's Like a Prayer. Uh, Michael Jackson, Billie Jean, number seven, and Mission's own uh, Carly Rae Jepsen, Call Me Maybe, ahead of Tupac and Dr. Dre with California Love at number nine. And then the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. So a very eclectic list, but there's a top 500. I I encourage you to Google all of it, and we'll play the 500 song as we uh, head into the commercial break. So Leah, let me go to you first and foremost. In your mind, what makes a good pop song? Well, uh, to begin with, I wonder why I like Big Butts wasn't in the top 10. I was kind of wondering what's going on here. Oh, God. We should, I mean, Stephen, can you check, by the way, to see if I like Big Butts is on the list? Because it, it, <laughs> it was groundbreaking to a certain degree. <laughs> it's just when you read off the list, like I did look at the list, it's so weird. Like you said, it's like total different genres, like songs I like, songs I don't like. I mean, it's so subjective, like you're saying. I mean, really, my top one is it, not going to be your top one or Sarah's top one at all. I mean, I swear they picked this with a magic eight ball. They picked this with a magic eight ball. Yeah, exactly. They just pick cards. I mean, I would pick um, instead of Whitney's I Want to Dance, maybe you know, I will always love you. I don't know. The, to me, I just think yeah. that 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 group is kind of weird. The top ten. I don't know. I, I don't want to dance with somebody. Voting. Is number one. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> Aretha <laughs> Franklin R E S P E C T is number twenty one. I mean, right there. That, <laughs> this is an affront to everything. <laughs> one ninety three uh-huh. Barry Manilow Copacabana. How about that? Well, one ninety three. If you're drunk on a cruise, why not? Sure. Okay. Uh-huh. Sir, what do you think? I mean. Music is, I mean, it is subjective and I get that, but I guess the question is, do we focus on the classics uh, and the folks that really, you know, help build rock and roll and music from the 60s and 70s and 50s, uh, or is it the new artists uh, in many ways? I guess that's the issue. What, What do we value the most? I think the problem here is that is that we are all of di- different generations. I'm the last year of the baby boomer, 64, right? So yeah. my my references are completely different what, than what Leah's might be and what some of the listeners <laughs> driving home right now might think. So I would be looking at references. I mean, I listen to everything, um, and I listen to modern music as well as the music that I was growing up with. But I think that it, it would be probably better served if you said, the best 100 pop songs of the 70s, the 80s. Yeah. Because, yeah. because, I mean, honestly, you know, you cannot put R-E-S-P-E-C, respect, in the same court category as I want to dance with somebody. I mean, come totally on. And even yeah. Whitney Houston did not like that song. So... Come on. <laughs> well, some are fast and some are slow. Like, it just makes no sense. Yeah. Like, like you're saying, do all pop then, you know, yeah. dancey pop music, and then slow songs. Like, why mix the two? Like, who really was voting this? I want to see their faces. I want to see what they Well, they've like, got, they like, Otis Redding like? sitting... <laughs> Yeah, they've got Otis Redding sitting on the dock of the bay, which is a, like a beautiful classic, a totally different mood. What? And then, you know, where, where girls is that? just want to have fun sitting Lauper. I mean, I don't even know how you read that. Madonna's Vogue was 186, and I don't know if you like Madonna or not, but wow. you know, she did have a moment in pop culture, still does, I guess, that plays a role. And yeah. I'm just surprised some of them are way too high. Like, 
you know, people are going to remember Madonna and Vogue. How does that end up 186? But Carly Rae Jepsen, once again, the pride of Mission That's BC. It, yeah. It's a great tune. I, I got no complaints. It's but it's just from eight to Madonna being 186. You kind of go, what? What was the formula? I mean, I guess they for Carly, for Carly Rae Jepsen. For Carly Rae Jepsen, I give her props because she writes her own music. Yeah. I mean, and that's probably more recent memory. That was all over the place. Remember during the Olympics a couple of Olympics back, that was like the song. And I and I get it why, you know, the people that are the editors and the writers probably at Billboard were all probably born after 1990. So, you know. Yeah, exactly. Resonate a little bit more. Exactly. Well, coming up next, why do celebrities need to involve themselves in geopolitical events? And we head into commercial break. We pay, play uh, re- a song number 500 on the Billboard oh. 500 list. <laughs> we don't have it? Oh, we don't have it. Oh, we're still oh. looking for it. What oh, you it? couldn't what find it? It was imagined. Oh, uh, no. Should I, should I tell them? Uh, I think. If it was imagined, I will die. No, that no, will be no, the awful thing. I'll tell you. It was Macarena. Oh, <laughs> Remember the no, Macarena? No, it was not. It was. How was no, that even in the list? Well, it is. Oh, my can God. I got to bash my head against the wall. Oh, here we go. There you go. Oh, here we go. You guys can dance. Dance while we head into the commercial yeah, break. Nobody's dancing <laughs> here. Nobody is dancing. There you go. Number 500. Back after the break. What is that? <laughs> that is that? a Hang bunch on, of. Again, I'm going to kill them. No, that is a bunch of celebrities singing. Imagine all the people during. Remember the pandemic and Gal Gadot and a few of the other ones uh, yes. uh, did that oh, little God. shtick. And then once again, oh. I, I think they were mostly mocked. And uh, I know that this time is different. But today, a group of 55 prominent artists and advocates in the entertainment industry signed an open letter to President Joe Biden, urging for a call for a ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. They included Joaquin Phoenix, Kate Blanchett, John. Stewart, Kirsten Stewart, Susan Sarandon. Now, I understand the situation uh, in Israel and in Gaza is very dire, um, but I want to get your guys' thoughts on just celebrities. Uh, you know, they're also obviously very, very well known. Should they be sticking their nose into geopolitical issues on, on when it comes to, to, to Israel or even a pandemic, whatever it may be? Uh, Leah, what do you think about this? I mean, is there a value for celebrities to get involved? Uh, you know, that's such a... That's a tough question because I think some celebrities, you know, they have lots of followers. They have a huge platform. I think for some type of issues, I think they should step in because they have that big platform and people listen to them. But then there's other issues where I think they need to back off. I just, to me, it's just which ones are which, because then if you say something, I mean, people are all over you, right? So mm-hmm. media people rip into you, even if they're making a valid point. So we know how people react nowadays. It's visceral. But I just think that, you know, celebrities have to be very careful what they're promoting and what they're not promoting when they do give their opinion, because they have such a big platform. So I think they have to be careful, you know, this situation in Israel. Like, I think, you know, everybody comes from it at a different perspective. And I think, you know, it's okay for them to have their own views but I think you have to be very careful because you're talking about you know mass murder you're talking about destruction you're talking about just absolutely devastating you know situation here that you have to be very careful with what you say I think yeah absolutely Sarah what about you I mean like I said this is a a, an event certainly in in the Middle East that is playing out in real time and it may expand and it's going to go for many many months Um, and and I totally understand the argument that they're making but do you think this is a place for celebrities at this point? 
you know, the, the, the tough thing is, is that, you know, some, some celebrities actually might have a little bit of gravitas in the situation, like a John mm-hmm. Stewart, who is pretty politically aware. Mm-hmm. Others might actually sort of denigrate the entire idea. I mean, it really is a sort of step-by-step thing. You know, asking Joe Biden to call a ceasefire when he is actually, you know, for all intents and purposes on the sidelines. I mean, he obviously has a great influence on Middle Eastern politics as the leader of the free world, et cetera. But, you know, at the end of the day, you cannot you cannot force a ceasefire onto unwilling parties. So no. there's that. I mean, here's the thing is if you can have uh, like a Marin Morris who is, you know, has left country basically in protest for the way that the LGBTQ community is, is has been treated and mm-hmm. has been very vocal about that and has been very supportive, which is great. You've got, again, like I was just saying, um, uh, 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 Daily Show, John Stewart, yeah. who has been very, very strong advocate for firefighters and everybody affected by mm-hmm. 9-11 and has 9/11. made sure that they've gotten on, ongoing health care. And the benefits that they so richly deserve. And in those cases, I think it's really important. But in an issue that is, I mean, you know, I read a lot. I follow politics really intensely. And I know a fair amount about this subject. But I would never, ever uh, sort of think that that my opinion would be, you know, that important or that, you know, re- relevatory to the to the broader population to discuss. There's so many things in a situation like this that is that is so difficult to understand to actually say, you know what, I, I, I support the, the, the Palestinians right to have a homeland. I, I support Israel's right to be a free and, and happy democratic country. And I cannot stand terrorism. And Hamas is a terrorist mm-hmm. group. I think we all agree on that. And yeah. that's yes. fine. Yep. I, that, that is something that I don't think, I mean, even, even the, the staunchest Israeli Zionist population would say, you know, that they do understand that the importance of having a Palestinian homeland, all that kind of stuff. But there's mm-hmm. so many little details behind the scene. And to come out with a blanket statement like, let's call a ceasefire and everything yeah. will yeah. be fine. I, I will give a them... little bit. It's a little bit easy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it's such such a complex issue that is, I mean, Absolutely. leader after leader uh, has tried to write down to the Oslo Accords with Bill Clinton. The celebrity sometimes I roll my eyes with, and, and it's a legitimate issue, is like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio talking about the environment. Hey, that's great. Mm-hmm. I respect you. Maybe get off the private jets. Private jets and quit renting yeah. out yachts dating 24-year-old <laughs> yeah. models. You know, hey. Yeah. You know? So walk let, the walk. Walk, walk the, the walk. walk. And, and that's yeah. the problem yeah. with a lot of this stuff. It's easy to say I support this or I'm against that. But uh, there's a commitment to being an activist. And, and I respect uh, actors who are activists. That's- and they put yeah. the commitment and that's there, why right? I, like you know, like John Stewart. I mean, he has been very vocal and super supportive of nine eleven survivors, their yeah. families, firefighters, all that kind of stuff. The guy has spent, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of his own time lobbying Congress, going to like congressional meetings where he's like half half the Congress doesn't show up to try and get this kind of stuff done. He really knows his stuff about things like that, and I would never ever want to get into an argument about it with him, no. like if I had a different side of it, because I'm obviously going to be circled a thousand times. But on these kind of great sort of global scale kind of issues, yeah. there's so much that we just cannot comment on. Exactly. And especially like people like Taylor Swift, because she is such, you know, her fans are diehard fans. You'd be very careful mm-hmm. what you say, because they're going to follow you. Exactly. You know, follow. Yep. Ladies, we've run out of time. Always uh, a fun time with both of you. It was great. Have yourself a wonderful weekend, and we'll do it again go every dance Friday. i somebody, damn it. <laughs> no, we're going to Macarena. I like we're gonna, butt. We're going to oh, Macarena. Oh Number 500. Thank you, oh, ladies. I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.